Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. All right, I'm back in Plenary Session, joined by Catherine Axforce. Catherine Axforce is a postdoctoral fellow. I was about to butcher it. Catherine Axforce is a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University. She's a medical doctor from Sweden, and she has been continuing her studies and her research here in the States for the last couple years. Um, And I think she has a very interesting point of view about some of the things we don't get to talk about, which is Sweden from the point of view of somebody who is in fact Swedish and from Sweden. Catherine, it's so such a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for having me here. Honored to be here. So, I guess, you know, I had, I had pitched you for a while this idea to find out about, you know, what life is like in Sweden from the point of view of somebody from Sweden. And I'm wondering, you know, you were here when COVID-19 hit. Um, you were studying at Stanford. Um, but obviously you have family, you have friends uh, back in Sweden. You trained as a medical doctor there, so surely you have your, your classmates. I wonder if you might take us back to the beginning. Um, let's go back to March of 2020 and I guess go from there. You know, Sweden is often often described in comparison to every other nation, but you know, what do you think Sweden was thinking back in March of 2020? Where was it similar to other countries? Where was it different? Um, what do you think the media got right about it? What do you think they got wrong? Maybe let's start in the beginning, and then we can go through the whole year, what's happened since. Thank you. I think the, this will be very interesting to go over. I've been thinking quite a lot, as you can imagine, being here, being away from my country, hearing so much about my country. Um, but it's also a huge question, so I will need your help okay. to try to disentangle <laughs> this. But all right, so um, beginning of 2020, I had just visited Sweden. I had been there in February, and... Um, or by early February, so that was before everything. Then I came here and things really started. So, um... You had been there in February? Yes. Spreading COVID! <laughs> <laughs> I was just spending time in the ski tracks. Oh, so okay, okay. That's Probability like the... of COVID spread low. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the most socially distanced activity you can do, actually. <laughs> okay. Um, and then you came back to the States? Yes, I did. Just before? Yeah. Things would have been tough. Mm-hmm. And then everything locked down. I see. But, so, yeah. So what was your question? What what were I guess I guess the way I think about some of the differences are, you know, in contrast with other nations that entered in the middle of March into the quote unquote lockdown, essential businesses shut down. Sweden tried to not get into the deepest of lockdowns. The schools were kept running, that was a difference. Um, people were they did go to work in some capacity. Uh, is that true? You're nodding yes. your head. Yeah. It's an audio podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop okay, nodding. Yeah. Yeah. So um yeah, so what happened in March in Sweden? How was it different than, I guess, California might be the polar extreme because California, nobody did anything. So one thing to understand is that, um, actually, there are a few reasons why, uh, or that contributed to Sweden's response, let's see. But let's take an overview. So what did Sweden do? They, like, um, the major actors were the government, of course, then we have the public health agency, which is a government agency. And then we have the municipalities, the regions, those are sharing the power. And one thing to know is that even if the Sweden, like the Swedish officials had wanted to do a lockdown, so to say like, um, and how do we define lockdown? We need to define that first. So that's uh, restricting movements of people, um, residents of a country within the country and even maybe making them being confined to their own home. Mm-hmm. The constitution in Sweden doesn't allow that. doesn't allow that? No, we can't do that. I see. So you can't weld them shut in like Wuhan when they welded the doors. I see. The constitution prohibits what? Preventing the movement of free people? Yes, as I understand. Okay. 
So and also it didn't it didn't um, allow for closing of bars or restaurants or businesses. I see. Like they they issued uh, rules to uh, restrict the number of people visiting and. Um, I see. And yeah, capacity. Capacity and also physical distancing I see. was enforced. What about um, international borders? You could could you have flown back to Sweden? Yeah, me as a, a citizen. citizen, I could. But then people from outside the EU were not allowed in. I see. If you were from the EU but not from Sweden, you were not allowed to enter Sweden. Yeah, I, I actually I might mess up if you. Okay. I know that if you were not from the EU, yes. you couldn't enter Sweden. Certainly, okay. During the yeah. Okay. So but whether or not the EU countries could was an open question. Um, we can look that up, but um, I, okay. But your point is well taken, which is in contrast with other places, the bars didn't close, but of course they abided by dis- by distancing, uh, some capacity reductions. Restaurants didn't close. What about work for your friends, your family? Uh, were people going to work? Um, you're nodding. Yes. Yeah. So here comes like one difference then. <clears throat> so although there were no enforced rules to say stay at your home, yes. stay at in your region or whatever, like some countries I know, France has had some. Uh, like rules you can't go beyond what was it like one kilometer from your home during some period no such things although no enforced rules but there were recommendations that were issued like please uh, if you feel ill stay at home Um, don't do any unnecessary travel in the country if you can work from home and it may sound ridiculous to say just you know please do this if you can but this message was repeated every day during um, press conferences that they held from Martin onwards. And as it seems, what what keeps me a bit intrigued is that we do have data that says there were widespread behavior changes mm-hmm. during the spring sure. and the summer. So in a way, that seemed to have worked. We don't know how much more behavior change there would have been if the rules were enforced. Sure. Especially in maybe the most hit areas, then. Sure, such as Stockholm. Yes. So I guess, you know, one question, which I guess I don't know the answer off my top of my head, but I suspect someday somebody will investigate a great deal, which is, um, you know, how different was, you know, obviously the, the key thing you, cha- you care about changing is the behavior of individuals. And the different ways to change that are you can have rules, you can have, if you have rules, you have to figure out what punishments or carrots you will give for the rules. Or you can simply have um, some less less severe rules, such as I guess what they had in Sweden, um, and count on the fact that people will probably choose not to do some things. And I guess, I think someday we will have the answer, but I wonder, first question is in fact, did the actual behavior of people, was it any different in Sweden than in the US? We had stricter rules for sure, but people were violating those rules. I mean, people would meet up in somebody's uh, house and have some drinks, uh, uh, that was common. And and then the thing is, you might ask, well, maybe the government should have enforced stricter rules in the U.S. or something like that. I, I think anyone who thinks that uh, doesn't know the U.S. like I know the U.S., which is that we're not gonna we're not gonna tolerate that. I mean, people would people's heads would explode, and uh, people would uh, it would have led to massive outcry. I mean, the only way they got away with the rules they got away with was the fact that they allowed rampant cheating on every single rule. I mean, in the U.S., for instance. They never shut down borders between states, and the thought would be unthinkable. This country would never be able to successfully shut down state borders, I don't think. Um, my understanding is that you could have flown to any city in this country for any time in the pandemic, rented a car, rented a hotel room, and uh, you know you might not have been able to get indoor dining, but you could have gone anywhere you wanted. Um, and that is, uh, uh, you know, that's just the reality, despite the fact that we had these rules. So I guess one point you're making is that the behavior of the average Swede was markedly different. Um, and and you're saying that the only question mark would be, could they have done something more in Stockholm? I think that's a fair summary. And some other things that made Sweden different than yes. that, that we've heard of, that yes. we've all heard of, is that, well, schools for people below the age of 16 were never closed. Mm-hmm. They were kept open. Yes. So that's I've read about difference. this. Yeah. Yes. So that... I think is a is something that uh, I, I mean my feelings are that it was a wise decision, um, although you know I don't forgive places like or sorry I don't blame places like Switzerland for closing for my understanding was four weeks total they quickly reopened the only person to blame is this country where we closed for over a year here in California, um, but one of the virtues of the fact Sweden kept the schools open was that we have been able to see a number of reports about how that went 
So my understanding is schools were clo- were not closed, no masks, no distancing, and rates of spread were super low. That's my understanding as well. Mm-hmm. I'm also eager to see if there can be more in-depth analyses than have been done uh, so far. Yes. That would be interesting for all, I think. But, but yes, that's yes. the summary I would make. The person who did that analysis, he found himself under a great deal of fire. That's true. I'm not even sure I should mention his name. <laughs> <laughs> he might. He won't want it. No, I guess he won't want it. And that's such a shame. I tremendously respect this professor. Yes. And he has done um, such an effort, I think, during the whole pandemic to try also to figure out the situation, to make sense of it, to summarize it for all the, <laughs> all the rest of us to understand it. Interesting. I think he's a very wise person who gives, uh, he has so much to share. And because of threats, death threats he received, he, cho- he chose to step down from his COVID research. That's shocking. When you were called back to your family and friends in March and April, what was the attitude of, you know, people in the time in Sweden? Did they, did they like the Swedish stance? Were they critical of the Swedish stance? What, what was their attitude back then? You know, that's also a very interesting question. And I, frankly, I don't even remember how it was back in March, but I can tell you how it is now. Yes. And um, I've been talking to my, yeah, my, my friends who are mostly, I should admit, then, well, they are... Um, junior doctors, many of them, in uh, Swedish healthcare. And I think they all gave me quite a unanimous picture. Most people at their workplace and of their family, most people support the Swedish strategy, I would say. Uh, Although there is a fraction who, who really did not support it, and they have been debating it. And I think from my point of view, that debate has been very healthy. Uh, But also, I think this this picture is also um, confirmed by population-based polls that have been done like throughout the year. Those who didn't support the policy, did they want more aggressive measures taken? That's an interesting thing. So let me just like cherry pick one one poll that I thought of that I found like from from May I think last year, and it was done by um, Cantor Sifo. That's a it's it's a known company. Swedes who listen to this will will recognize who it is. And so they asked, I think, around 6,000 randomly chosen adult Swedes, like, do you think that the measures taken are well balanced? And if I remember it right, like 60% said yes, or they agreed. Um, Around 15% uh, thought no, they should be harsher. 15% said no, they should be more lenient, like they should be more more mindful of the economy. And then another 10% didn't know. I see. So it wasn't always in in the harsher direction. You know, we use words like harsher and aggressive uh, but I think even those are misnomers for the for the simple fact that nobody has any fucking clue which one of these things don't do anything, right? Yeah. I mean, you, do you, do you agree with that statement that nobody really knows which of these rules actually help? That's You're nodding, true. but we yes, that's help. true. And I thank you for reminding me. Yes. I should stop nodding. And I mean, that's one of the things I can really regret the most on on behalf of all of us. So we can talk about what we think worked and. I mentioned to you before we started recording that Sweden is like everybody's favorite counterfactual, but how accurate is that really? And um, I think we will see during the next few years some very um, brave and and, um, perhaps, uh, well, as accurate as can be attempts to do quasi-experimental studies on this, observational studies on this, but will we reach any kind of reliable truth of what measures worked and not? I would say, well, there is some hope, but it's not great. Can, is it even possible to do the studies? For instance, there's been many people who have already stated that their gut feeling is that they don't; these things don't work. There have been many people who've already stated, in fact, they've screamed, they've been screaming recently that, you know, Michigan just needs to shut down, shut down right now, close all the stuff right now, close the schools right now. Um, can such a person who's screaming that Michigan needs to do this ever be in a position to impartially adjudicate whether or not it worked? I, uh, I think that's a very wise wise comment. So um, I would say, yeah, I would trust that person to do an analysis if the person um, makes a carefully designed pre-specified protocol together with a group of people who are not all known to be, to have very strong opinions. Mm, you know, okay. yeah, that would be my... I think uh, that's good. And I think the key part to your statement is that they have to pre-specify the protocol. Yeah. I'll tell you what they're going to do. They're going to run the analysis... And then they're going to post the protocol on the website. They're going to cheat. I mean, that's a possibility. I know what they're going to do. 
But... <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't trust them. They have too much at stake. They've been screaming like zealots, I mean, frankly. In both directions, uh, frankly. Yeah, yeah, definitely in both I directions. Know. Yeah, in both directions. I mean, there are people who are equally convinced it doesn't work and do nothing. You know, I wrote my little piece on lockdown where I said, I have no clue. And in addition to not having a clue, I put that I think there's so many effect modifiers at, at play that it's almost impossible to even answer. Um, because, for instance, the seed load, nobody knows what the seed load was in March 13th in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows how many people had COVID in Sweden in March 13th. Nobody knows how many in Australia March 13th. Maybe it works great if there's one in 100,000 COVID cases. Then you lock down the country, the COVID will die out on its own because, you know, you're, you're, you're slowing it enough and there's some chaotic uh, uh, termination of, of spread. But if there's, you know, 1,000 and 100,000, maybe nothing you do can stop it. Uh, maybe some are destined to break through the cracks because human beings can't, you know, weld themselves into, into rooms. Again, different than Wuhan-style lockdown, where maybe you can stop it at, uh, you know, even tremendous rates because you can really confine people in a way you can't confine them in other societies. So I guess, and then the other thing I'd say is actually I'm probably never going to study it because the moment COVID's over, I'm going to pop my champagne. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to drink the whole bottle. Actually, I don't need a glass. <laughs> and then I'm going to go on to do all the research I actually want to do um, for, for my career. Uh, so I'm that imper- impartial person who's not going to participate in these efforts, I think. Um, okay, what do you think? Are you going to participate in the efforts? You are an impartial person, I believe, from having talked to you prior. Well, that might be a a flattering conclusion. I don't know. Can anybody be impartial Mm. to that level? Um, I I would certainly certainly want to do, to make good efforts, to try to be. Um, Since, well, I would like to do the same as you when it's when this is all over. However, I, I happen to come from a very small country who that will be under continuous debates. Mm. I mean, I don't see that ending, really. So I would like to contribute to a fair assessment of what's been done. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. And also, well, it, it does pain me that that we would leave it there that we would not take this opportunity to discuss how could we better learn? How could we better prepare? And also the one thing that pains me the most, I think, about everything that's happened during the past year is, which I think you, Monica Gandhi and Stefan Burrell have also wisely pointed out during several podcast sessions that I've had the the privilege to listen to, like how this has exposed these uh, tremendous health inequities that are just, they are there, they are the background. And I think those are to blame for, for, well, I would dare say most of the devastating effects that we've seen during the past year. And they are not attributable to the current governments, the current political leaders. So although, well, many, maybe many political leaders currently, they have done some, some quite, um, lamentable decisions stupid during the past things. year yes, you yes. say stupid As i say <laughs> lamentable you, yeah. yes yes <laughs> however those things like the current health inequities we can't blame them for that correct they have been building up for a long time we correct. need to address them yes i i mean i agree with you uh but in fact i will say there was somebody who recently pointed out that although COVID is the direct cause of death, actually, I'll tell you something before. There, there's a book by Richard Lewinton, the biologist, and he says, um, you know, if you die of tuberculosis, what do you die of? And of course, in, in, a, in a certain respect, you die of the, the bacteria, tuberculum or whatever, tuberculosis. You die of that, you know, mycobacterium. That's what kills you. You died of tuberculosis. You died of that bacteria. It ravaged your body. You died. But he was like, that's not what really killed you. What really killed you was poverty confinement with others who are close, no living space, uh, un- unhygienic conditions, the lack of a healthcare infrastructure that when you first coughed up blood, uh, they didn't treat, take care of you, poor nutrition, poor sanitation. That's what killed you. All the social structures killed you. In fact, I used to think that's what, you know, as a progressive, I keep saying, that's what we used to believe. Recently, somebody said that even though COVID was the direct cause of death in some people, what really killed him, what killed him was that we kept, we made them keep working. We made them work in tight conditions. We made them live in tight conditions in households where lots of people don't have a lot of square footage. Um, you know, what, what really killed him was uh, patterns of obesity, unhealthiness, uh, you know, uh, the, the different risk factors that predispose one. Obviously, age the strongest one, but to some degree, BMI, other medical conditions, to some degree, mo- much more modest. Um, you know, this person made this point that these other things played a role. Um, 
sounds like the point you're making as well, but on the internet, this person was pilloried, you know, was criticized. How dare you say those things? It was COVID. Uh, yeah, it was COVID, of course. Uh, and yes, our policy response was bungled, of course, but it was also all these underlying things that, you know, we're quick to ignore. Yes, I couldn't agree more. In Sweden, you have less of that. I would say relatively, yes. I mean, just basic comparison. So I don't know if, if the listeners know this, this is super basic, but okay, Sweden, country of 10 million people, slightly bigger than California, uh, population density around the same as Minnesota. And so it's uh, it's such a huge difference to yeah the US. I mean, come on, how could you ever compare? But one thing that strikes me is that, well, we do have universal health care, tax funded, and it covers all legal residents. Then. Mm. That's what universal means. In this country, you have, if I understand it correctly, it's around like 10% of people who have no health insurance. That's right. Like yes. none. Yes. We have a terrible system in this country. I think, I mean, of course. I mean, I think, I think the ethos of this country is different than your country in the sense that in your country, tell me if I'm wrong, but people feel some sense of it's all our duty to make sure that the least well-off person has, you know, some options, some upward mobility. In this country, I think a sizable percentage of people think that least well-off person, that's their business. It's not my business. And, you know, don't bother me to help that person. I mean, I obviously, I vehemently disagree with that point of view. Uh, however, that's the reality. Is that a fair assessment of the attitude of Sweden? It might be, yes. Mm. I think, but this has also been, you know, um, been worked out over many decades. I think this question is so tremendously complex that I'm I'm even fearful of going into it. We might dig well into it in some other time. Yes. Um, Let me ask you this then. Johan Gesecki. Do I say his name right? Yeah. Close enough. Just like close I said enough. your name close enough. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay. What um what what do you think about him? What do your colleagues think about him? Um, you know, elder statesman type. Um you know, had strong things to say about SARS-CoV-2 in the beginning. And I think one of his core principles was the idea that he thought it was not containable in the sense that it was going to do something. Uh, you know, all you can do is mitigate the damage, but you cannot put it back in the bottle. Hmm. You know, I'm going to slightly diverge okay. the question to what do people think about the public health agencies, okay. um, policy in general. Not the people. Not the people? I don't know. Are you going to talk about the people or the public health? Johan Gesecki, he's an advisor. The, the public health agent is Tegel. Andras? Anders Tegnell. Yes. yes. That's yeah, how you pronounce he's it. He's the, the yes. chief epidemiologist. Okay. He's the guy who makes the decisions. Well, oh, that's a tricky question. How does really, how, what is really the, the structure of the public health agency? Yes. At, at that granular level, that's hard to answer. Okay. But I can tell you that the public health agency as a whole is an agency that, well, it in informs the government and it also issues recommendations. The government can choose to overrule the recommendations, but traditionally they don't. So the public health agency has traditionally had like a, a very power. heavy role in this. And there is a principle for the governing of Sweden, which is that an agency that has usually one area of responsibility, well, it keeps that area of responsibility in a crisis as well. So, and I, I would say that that's a kind of a fair principle. Those are the people who are used to doing doing it. But the question was, why? Um, what do we think about their strategy? Yes. And well, you know, one thing that makes a lot of sense to me. Think back to March twenty twenty, and what we did expect in terms of um, vaccines. Yes. I can say for for my part, I had no idea that it would go this fast. Correct. They Eight. were talking about years. Yes. Uh, in plural, many of them. Yes. Not one. So I think that well, the decisions may have looked differently if they had um, deemed it more likely to be one year. Yes. But then, the strategy was to uh, to take measures at the right time that were measures that they thought the Swedish public could um, could sustain for a long time. That's a difference. One difference is that they're thinking about what can be sustained. Mm -hmm. Other places think about what can be done now. And I think that's a big, I mean, well, I mean, my bias is that you need to think about sustainability. You can't ask people to do things that they cannot sustain. Um, 
because they will not be able to sustain it. And then you're just going to delay the inevitable, as happened in many places, I think, where they had a big second wave, where people finally went back to doing what people, I think, craved to do. And I wonder if you might, you know, you're known for one thing. I mean, you're known for many things, but you're known for one thing in particular, your meta-analysis of hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. Huge meta-research effort. What do you call it? A rolling systematic review. You're always keeping up with it. You're always adding new things to the meta-analysis. Oh, actually, it was. we didn't define it as a living okay. systematic review. It, it was more of a, yeah, collaborative meta-analysis of ongoing trials okay. and finished trials. I see. And... Uh, it finds, if anything, a death signal. It increases death. Yes. That's what we concluded. Yes, that's what. It's going to make a lot of people unhappy. Unfortunately, yes. And associating with that, I actually, we did, um, unrelated to the meta-analysis, I contacted, like the holders of, there is a registry in Sweden called the Intensive Care Registry. Yes. I contacted them, I think it was in April last year, May. And to ask um, aggregated data, what, what what medication had been given to intensive care patients. And it's just like in this country. I think most of the patients had received hydroxychloroquine mm. by that time. Nice. And also there were even rules in Sweden saying that physicians who were not specialists in, um, for example, rheumatology, they could not prescribe hydroxychloroquine to patients anymore. Primary care doctors couldn't because the, the supplies were being depleted. Nice. Well, it was always so, a stupid thing to do. I, you know, I tweeted in the April, like, um, the problem with hydroxychloroquine is people think the pretest probability is like 10% chance it works, you know, and they have some distribution around 10%. And I tweeted, the pretest probability it works is like 0%, with a huge spike on 0%, mm-hmm. and then like some probability it kills and some probability it helps. Super low, but like 99% of the area under that spike was on 0, it doesn't do, doesn't do anything. And that's because that's what happens with drugs development is that most of the time it doesn't do anything. And I guess it was a great error because, you know, I, I mean, in retrospect, even at the time, I think, it was irrationality talking, which is when you're desperate, when you're scared, you reach for things that are available. Maybe they help, maybe they don't. It's no different than, I think, probably the plagues in, you know, in the Middle Ages or even, uh, you know, from 2000 BC. Uh, they probably, you know, whatever they had, they probably thought it was the magic thing. I don't know, eat a lot of raisins. I don't know, whatever, <laughs> saffron, you know, whatever whatever was exotic or hard to come by, I'm sure was something that people said would help. But I think, you know, your meta-analysis is really excellent. It's in Nature Communications, and I think it proves, proves that point. Okay, I want to come back to Sweden. The king has said on the record, Sweden, we screwed up. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on this king? Oh, thoughts on the king. That's that's sensitive. I'm not sure. Are you allowed to? <laughs> no, no, just it's kidding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> of course we are. But I can tell you also that it's not just the king. It's the prime minister also went okay. out and, and said, you know, um, we made mistakes. And um, there has also been this independent, independent commission that was uh, appointed by the government to um, to evaluate the whole response. And they made their first report, which was about protecting the elderly. And they, well, their rubric was, we failed on that point. And I've been thinking about that too. I have a couple of things to say about the work of the, of the commission. I really look forward to, to the further analyses from them. But um, I hope that they will really take into account when they try to evaluate like how Sweden did compared to other countries. How did we do compared to the Nordic neighbors, um, compared to to other countries in the EU, I mean, just as we discussed before, this will be extremely difficult to disentangle. And um, I'm not sure that they can answer it fairly, but I will be curious to see what they conclude. But when it comes to elderly care, I I think that there is a lot of truth to it. I'm not sure that we failed worse than other countries. Their report doesn't say that, but that there was a failure, that's for sure. Um, things to think about there is like well the early the early recommendations that came um they focus really on the hospitals how should we handle it in, in terms of hospital beds and icu icu beds and and for that when it comes to health the healthcare system how it handled covid when it comes to um, severe cases severe um severe cases in hospitals i just have this tremendous respect i think that was that's applaudable what how they handled that 
and um, I know that it's taken uh, yeah the effort by by people in healthcare there is just uh, it's just beyond words. They worked kind of, you know how, how holy the summer is for Swedes? I mean, you've heard of the Swedish weather. Yes. And there's like this window of... And I've watched my Ingmar Bergman films. <laughs> well, you have. Yes, many of them. That's, that's a Perhaps bit... all of them, actually. I'm not sure what that does to your general mood, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, you know, there's this window just a few weeks in the summer. Yes. That is actually nice. Yes. And then that's the time when everybody wants their vacation. Yes. And that didn't happen last year for people in in healthcare. Mm, I see. Like, yes. uh, and that's a, I don't know. It might not sound like a big thing. It's a big thing. That's like when you actually get get to rest. I see. And so the pressure on people. That is also something building up that needs to be relieved in in the long term. Mm. So I hope that this can serve as a kind of a signal to to focus on that. Anyway, that's a, that's a digression. So how the hospitals handle it applaudable then when it comes to primary care the recommendations for primary care came later and there was a lag in the beginning you know i talked about how how the the power is decentralized and it's um, divided into many actors like government municipalities regions and in the beginning it wasn't really sure whose responsibility is it to ensure that we can test uh, on a large scale like people with mild or moderate symptoms that wasn't clear it wasn't coordinated and uh, same goes for elderly care, like recommendations for how they would handle the situation. It came late. So um, that together with long-standing structural problems led to that situation. And that I would say, because you asked me before the session what, what, what were things that were good, what were things that were bad. Well, about how, how primary care, elderly care handled the situation in the beginning, I would say, well, that's on the bad side of the scale. And I guess the point that I want to make is that I think in some respects it's similar to New York, uh, which also did a bad job of protecting uh, the most vulnerable, the elderly who are in nursing homes. Um, and, I, and the point I want to make, though, is that uh, there are two, that two things are separate. Uh, you might have been able to do a better job of protecting older people in Sweden, maybe even in New York State, that doesn't necessarily mean the policy choices around younger people or average risk people were wrong. I think the conflation in the mind of the public is because the deaths are higher, the policy choices were wrong for the younger people. You could the, the policy choices could have been the best for the younger people, and it could have been an error on the other side, right? These are two separate questions, and and they often get conflated in online discussions. Where, um, first of all, Sweden has to only be compared against uh, Finland and Norway. By the way, you, I, my understanding is you tell me if I'm wrong. You're a bit different than Finland. Uh, and maybe much more like Denmark, you're nodding. Uh, um, I mean, and, and really not comparable really well to any of those countries. Yeah, so let me address that one. That, that really keeps me intrigued. Like, what, what's a good comparison? And um, I can only say what I'm observing. People who need Sweden to fail, they are comparing Sweden to, to Norway, Denmark, and Finland. Sure. People who need Sweden to succeed are comparing Sweden to the rest of the EU. So let's look at some, uh, I think, the latest number. So we have around, I think, 135 deaths of COVID per 100,000 um, inhabitants by now, which is, at this point, far higher than the neighboring Nordic countries, but it's uh, it's kind of um, average to low compared to other European countries. Same goes for excess mortality. At this point, it looked different after the first wave. But now Sweden has done relatively better compared to others. So I can't really give a good answer. I mean, one thing that I've heard speculations from on are that, well, it's also simplification to just say like the level of countries, because what happened in the first wave, almost every, I think at least 60% of the deaths happened in the Stockholm region. Yes. And I mean, if you look at Sweden, and the shape of it, most people live in the middle or south, yes. and and uh, two million out of ten million live in the Stockholm area, yeah. and that's where the spread was. And is Stockholm <laughs> comparable? I mean, that's obviously it's twice as big as the other Nordic capitals. Mm -hmm. Is the Stockholm region more comparable to its Nordic counterparts than the European ones? I don't know. Also, there was the question of, as you said. As you said before, like what was the 
what, what do you call it? Like the seed. seed yes, the seed load. Seed yes. load, yeah. yeah. So, How many people had it when you found out it was a problem? You don't. Nobody knows. No, they think that it came to Sweden in December. Yeah, even earlier. Yeah. Because Sweden has more travel than these other countries. That would be my guess, but I don't have numbers on I it. I don't know that for sure. But yes, I, I think, uh, I mean, I guess half the challenge in this, imagine one were to try to disentangle this, half the challenge is what is the metric we even use? Because you gave a good metric, which is deaths per 100,000. I think it's a good metric in a number of ways. It's better than cases per 100,000, which is very contingent on actually testing. It's better than hospitalizations per 100,000, which again is contingent on so many things. How do you attribute the hospitalization? Are they keeping track? Uh, testing, deaths per 100,000 is better, but it's not perfect, I think. I don't even know if it's perfect. For instance, the age structure is different, so it should at least be age-adjusted. Um, and I think the other thing is, how do you partition it? It should be, I mean, you have to pre-specify the partitions. Should it be county level? Should it be um, city level? Because as you say, a overall regions with the same policy can do well in 99 out of 100 counties, but one county with a population density unlike the others, and unlike your comparator countries, will do much poorly. So I think it's, I mean, these kind of analytic choices are, this is the, this is the, this is the crux of meta-research. The analytic choices may even dominate the signal. Hmm. Yes, yes. I mean, I... And you see the challenge. I'm, I'm nodding here because I have nothing to add. I think okay. that, that was really... <laughs> Let's talk about schools. Mm-hmm. So, uh, do you ever get irritated at listening to the schools discussion in this country? Because in this country, they make it seem like schools are, they make it seem like they're unnecessary. Like, I don't even know why we have them when there wasn't COVID with the way they talk about schools, as if they serve no vital purposes. Um, and if you have such a low view of the value of schools, then of course, any theoretical reason to close it is fine, you know. Um, but that's, I don't think that's true. And I had to educate myself uh, in the summer of last year when I read more and more papers about schools. And I think schools actually are more important here than they are in Sweden, because in Sweden you actually have, you know, other safety nets. We have nothing. Um, thoughts on schools? Yes. So, as they understand it from home, one principle they had when they issued their, their policies was that, you know, the baseline is that we keep the society working as it usually does, and, and then we take measures that we think will work. So the burden of evidence is on like introducing a change. Mm, yes. So the baseline is schools are open. Yes. Until that's you a prove that they improve outcomes. Yeah. That's a like yeah. vital function of society. Schools are open. And then you can close them if you well, if you believe the evidence is enough that uh, that that will help. I think this is tremendously um, complex at one level, like because it boils down to quite, I would say, subjective thresholds of what do you think is enough risk reduction of, of COVID in order to make it worth closing schools. I think that the, the discussion is so much more complex than, than how it is depicted. Yes. But what I can see now is that whatever the reason for decisions there is this situation that is very hard to get out of when you when you turn it upside down and you have a situation where schools have been closed for a very long time and you want evidence that it won't be harmful to open them yes and um, i can just say everyone is scared everyone has been affected by this so much during the past year um i mean for me i'm not a teacher i i can i can sympathize with people being afraid of coming back to work when they believe they have a high risk of getting getting infected i think maybe the task is to then investigate but also communicate like what risk are we talking about how does it compare with other risks in everyday life? And what measures can be taken to minimize the risk there is? Um, this discussion involves subjects that are um, too complex for me. It's like both um, definitely public health, politics, how do you communicate risk? Um, 
all these topics that need experts in many fields mm. and diplomatic people who can listen to each other and not throw throw around one-liners that are done on Twitter, like accusing people for for really horrible things, for horrible motives. Yeah. So yeah, sorry, a bit unstructured, but no, that's but like I think my... that's a good an- very good answer. I guess. I agree with the way you have broken down the problem, and I'll fill in the bubbles with my thoughts. Um, one question, what is the, every time you close a school, there is some change in viral spread. Uh, I'm certainly that to be the case, uh, uh, or I suspect that that would be the case, unless you assume that the kids in the counterfactual world are actually spending more time together playing outside on the street. That's possible too in some places. But, um, but I think from reading the data, one will have to appeal to the data. I guess I hate to say it, but apparently there's something called data that one would appeal to. And I guess I find the mo- the best study I had read by the summertime was the Germany study, where they had the staggered closures on the way in, uh, on the way to summer holiday, and they had the staggered openings on the way out. So they could disambiguate um, German-wide policies from the closure of the schools. And they found nothing, no signal in county-level spread by closing or opening the schools on either direction, um, which... Okay, you might be skeptical of, but it has been corroborated, I think, in a number of analyses, including that analyses that show the actual document of transmission in schools is even in places with rip-roaring community spread. We're talking about, you know, one one one-hundredth of that spread in schools, much, much lower. And then I think that really elegant paper, uh, which is now a preprint on Ember, the economists have looked at it, where they find that of 100% of the spread... 3% 3% at most is attributable to schools being opened or closed. And, and that could even be confounded, right? You know, that's not even a solid 3%. That paper, people tweeted at me and said, oh, you said it was fine to open schools. Didn't you see this paper that says opening schools spreads the virus? And I said, you're so fucking stupid. You didn't read the paper. 3% of the spread was attributable to schools. That means 97% is not attributable. Uh, that is a drop in the, that's, that's very small delta spread. Um, and I suspect it's confounded in a number of ways, which I'm happy to talk about at length, but you, one can imagine the ways in which it would be confounded. Um, uh, uh, but the benefit of schools in this country is tremendous. I mean, especially that they, we're not even closing all the schools. We're just closing the schools for poor kids because rich kids, of course, are in schools. God forbid, if you close schools for rich kids, you would have a really, you know, a real resurrect, a real insurrection on your hands. Um, the next question, the teachers. I was sympathetic, you know. Nobody wants to go to work and have the risk of dying. That said, I will admit that uh, I, I, I pushed very hard to get back to work very quickly. I made the move right in March um, to, you know, to, or not in March, but in May to move to, I was seeing patients in March, actually, um, my old employer, and I moved, of course, to UCSF. Um, I, I hammer called uh, uh, the uh, all the credentialing people, so I get a crew. So I get it. So by the summertime, I'm back in business. You know, I'm in clinic, face to face with people with the, you know, uh, we can talk about masks at the end, but with a with a thin piece of mask uh, uh, protecting me, obviously, quote unquote, uh, from the virus. But you know, why did I feel compelled to get back there? Is uh, well, you know, uh, it's my duty. Uh, so I, I, I guess uh, that's a full disclosure. I believe in this thing called duty. It doesn't get talked about in modern culture anymore, but duty was what uh, a couple generations ago motivated people for their whole lives. Uh, now it's happiness. See, I, I, that's different than duty. Uh, my grandfather didn't do anything for his own happiness. He did everything out of a sense of duty. And I think that switch has actually made us unhappy, but that's another thought. Um, so anyway, I was back in school. But then I looked at the teacher data. Sorry, I was back in uh, work uh, face-to-face seeing patients who could easily have COVID because they are very sick cancer patients. Um, I looked at the teacher data. You know, the odds ratio of getting sick, and the best data, of course, comes from Sweden because they had teachers back in person. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get too much into it, but I'm willing to concede the upper bounds of the odds ratio is 1.3. You know, uh, that's what I'm willing to concede, that there is some increased risk, but it's not 30, you know? It's not 20. It's not lung cancer and tobacco. It's 1.3. It's eating the extra strip of bacon. You know, it's a modest risk. And when one thinks about, you know, duty versus that risk, I think duty prevails. I mean, that's, so that's my feeling on it. I respect that. I couldn't, I can't use the same argument because I'm not working with patients at the no, moment. So I would feel like a hypocritical. But you have good reasons you and you lay it out very, very elegantly. So, but isn't then the question like, oh, but we can provide something good enough at distance, like we we oh, have yeah, this. That's the, the that was the next. Yeah. yeah, that's the, so. Then I evaluated that argument, and then um, 
I guess well, I guess the one thing I would say is you could mitigate the risk in the school, you know, with the distance from the teacher, from the class, from separating the cohorts, make sure the teachers don't hang out at the teacher lounge, which, to be honest, some of the spread in school might be adult-adult contact in, in, in closed uh, quarters. You know, it, that still hasn't been fully disambiguated. Um, then the next part of the puzzle was what was the counterfactual for the kids and the online was the was the counterfactual and uh, and it's not it's not even close it's so bad yeah and i think study after study probably the best work by raj chetty um you know showing that the kids aren't even logging on and the kids that aren't the kids that are are everyone always talks about you know their own kids on twitter and it's all these rich people who are well educated talking about their kids doing just fine uh some of them by the way their kids are not doing just fine even though the parents are rich and well educated imagine the kids the parents aren't rich they're not well educated and they don't got time to sit next to the kid and they don't maybe they don't have a laptop they don't have the wi-fi and to sit next to the kid and and i don't know i don't know go the kid into paying attention to the class um it's terrible and i think we see that um every state that has issued learning outcomes the learning outcomes are abysmal Kids aren't learning. They're losing grade levels. Half the states don't even want to test the kids because if you don't, if you don't know it's a problem if you don't look for it. Sort of like Trump's policy about COVID: don't test him because then it's no COVID. You know, it's similar irrationality. Um, the, and then the crux of the problem, in my opinion, is that it became political in the sense that people on my political bent, uh, progressives, uh, uh, foolishly uh, chose to. Uh, go against children on this issue and I think they will pay the price for that for a long time to come um, I guess my last thought on this is that I think I think that what you have done with COVID and the reaction um, whether people think it was excessive or under, under or not and the answer is it's probably a little bit of both some places excessive that did nothing like the outdoor mask mandate in some places they didn't do things they should have done like if you're gonna have takeout restaurants at least give those cooks uh, n95 mask they're gonna have to cook in the kitchen with each other and let them call in sick if they have fevers, for instance. You know, so there are different errors that are made. Um, I suspect the culmination of all these errors will be uh, worsening wealth inequality, worsening of all those determinants that led to the deaths from COVID, many of the deaths in the first place. And I suspect that will carry over in the political process and people will be angry, frustrated. They will feel like their lives are not the way it was. They don't have the same prospects as their father or their mother. Uh, they feel slighted, and and their poor and their education is not as good because in fact they weren't in school for a lot of the time. And those people, they may be they'll be hundred percent right that they were screwed. You know that somebody screwed them over. And some politician will come and they will be one hundred percent wrong about who screwed you over. And they will point the finger at all the people who didn't screw you over. But they won't know the difference. And that is what I think is the worst legacy, is that the next 15 years of political processes will be deeply destabilized, more volatile, more prone to true despots, uh, things that make this last guy look like, uh, uh, you, just as you know, you'll, just like I missed old presidents uh, with this last guy, you're gonna miss this last guy when you see what's yet to come. And so I think that's the longest legacy of, of kind of some of these failures, especially the schools, I think. The schools will cut the hardest. Yeah, I think the listeners can't see me nodding like a crazy person here. <laughs> what you're saying, but I have just, I have. Um, let's see, I had two, yes. two leads there, two comments to follow up on, and um, it one was about like um, connecting to. I listened to um, to another great discussion that you were involved in a few weeks ago, where I think it was Stefan Burrell who who said, you know, about health equity, we need to do more for those who need more. Yeah. And did we? I was thinking about in Sweden. One thing that they did wisely, I believe, was that in the massive financial aid packages they they made, um, like such measures like um, taking away the first unpaid day of sick leave. Mm, yes. Like one of those things. Yes. Or like stepping in and saying, well, uh, hey, for the first... Uh, two weeks of sick leave it's actually after one week you you normally need like um uh, what is it like a paper doctor's from the doctor. note yeah. exactly papers note a doctor's note but they can i say why away. that why that's important uh i think my understanding was the old policy in sweden was you would get paid sick leave starting on day two of your illness not day one yeah. and what that means is if you just want to take a day off to go drink with your buddies you're not you know you're not gonna pay for that day off so it's a disincentive to to being playing hooky one day uh, of course, it's also a disincentive if you have a mild illness to call in sick. Uh, they quickly recognize that they've created this incentive and they fixed it by saying, if you feel sick at all, you can take one day off and you get paid for that. So very smart. 
here's what we did. We took $500 billion. Actually, I don't know if people know. People always complain like, oh, the last administration, you know, they didn't spend any money on the problem. Oh, they spent a great deal of money. They spent trillions. The problem is they just spent it for other rich people. They didn't spend it on anything that mattered. They took $500 billion and injected it as a liquidity into many of these quote-unquote small businesses. Um, there's really elegant work that shows it was snatched up by businesses that largely were uh, going to keep their labor force anyway. Um, for instance, doctor's offices and things of the sort, and it was just a great um, cash grab by all these vested entities. Um, so it's not that any administration was unwilling to spend money. It's that, um, you know, in the craze, in the craze, people didn't push for where the money ought to be spent wisely. They were so concerned about whether or not you wear your mask on your run, but they didn't focus on where the money was going. Um, and I think that is uh, an error uh, that uh, is omnipresent. Okay, can I ask you about that? What are your thoughts on the mask data? Sweden didn't mask as much. Did they eventually have mask mandates? What happened in Sweden with the mask? Yeah, so if I understand it right, like during during the whole of, of um, 2020, the public health agency actually, they, they uh, did not recommend people to wear masks. They actually actively discouraged people. So the, the only ones who were recommended or required to have masks were people working in hospitals and in elderly care. Sure. Of course. But let's talk then just about the public. So, yes, there is currently a mask uh, uh, recommendation in public transport during rush hour. That's been since January okay. 2021. It makes sense to me. Sure. That's the place to do it. If there's a place to do it, that's the place. It's yes. not on your jog. <laughs> in the California wind. Yeah, okay. No. And that's been maybe the biggest um, disconnect for me, being hearing uh, hearing the public health agency officials saying there is no good data for, for masks. They said it, well, let's say then summer of, of um, 2020, late summer, when, when the U.S. had changed yes, position. Yes and started to um, to have campaigns that everybody should wear masks. Just that disconnect for me that here is, well, public health officials in this country really pushing for it, while the WHO, they had changed course then too, but in the beginning of the summer they said, well, there isn't good enough data for its public use, so we don't recommend it, and Sweden as well. And thus, like, hearing, hearing those differing... Um, that differing communication from from sources I trust that made a disconnect in my mind and I bet in others' minds as well. Have you done a uh, collaborative systematic review on this topic? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Dare you no. do one? I don't know. I mean, is anyone doing one in your group? I mean, those the collaborative um, meta-analyses that we did, they focused on randomized trials. And uh -huh. so far, I know only of two. Oh, well, you're talking about with SARS-CoV-2, but there are at least eight in influenza settings. Mm, interesting. Uh, are yeah. they ongoing? No. No, they're done. They're published. They're done. But you haven't reviewed all the literature. Well, I don't want to spoil anything <laughs> for you because I'm the author of a yeah. big review. It's the largest. It's the long article. Hopefully, it comes in full form. It's 26,000 words, 300 references. It is the definitive review on this topic. I won't spoil it for the listeners. It can only we can only we'll wait for the for the gears of the pro, of the of the publishing world to publish this definitive review. And I look forward I look forward to screenshotting that first page and pushing that tweet button. Well, I look forward to reading. <laughs> maybe I will maybe I'll be out of Twitter. Okay. Then the last thing I was supposed to talk to you about, this has been very interesting and it's very good to get your perspective. Wish I had done it sooner. Um, uh, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was social media. You know, you're on social media, but you don't say too much. You're very quiet. You're, mm -hmm. you're what they call a lurker. I don't know if you've heard this. <laughs> lurker. I've heard, yes. I think I've heard other words. That doesn't sound very flattering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like someone you shouldn't trust. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lurker sounds like a character from an Ingmar Bergman film. Isn't it right? Yeah, it is. Bergman's the lurker. Yeah, who are you? On the shows of I'm Malmo. the lurker. Yeah, I'm the lurker. Yeah, yeah it could be from Bergman. Um, so that's what they call it, though. Some call it the lurker. Um, uh, you've been lurking. Uh, you see anything you don't like? <laughs> what are your thoughts about social media? Was it healthy? Um, Was it healthy? Wow. You know, I, I don't have much of a reference. I started following... 
I started using Twitter in, in March 2020. Oh, Jesus. The worst time to use so, it. I guess so. And I can say that one of the first things I noticed starting when I started to follow, like, I, I will call them heavy players in the epidemiology field. And, well, it's very much like, oh, I don't know a good English expression, but it's like uh, some diamonds... Um, in the midst of a lot of shit. So, so and I think the diamonds still make it worth it. <laughs> That's right. a Swedish expression? No, no not really. Oh, okay. I just invented it. I should diamond, have said yes. No, diamond in the midst of shit. That sounds right. Okay. <laughs> so how many diamonds are there? I mean, or is there <laughs> you took a while to find the first one. Yeah, I, I think imagine. apparently enough diamonds to make me continue to use it. But one thing that I was, I would say, not impressed with was these heavy players um, mixing their super interesting uh, scientific comments with like these petty one-liners about other people in their field mm. and that just made me i don't know profoundly disappointed maybe i'm traditional <laughs> maybe i'm boring but i'm i just i fail to see how it's amusing and it's not interesting and it's just i don't know it, it it's um, it creates this yeah petty feeling about many things and that i I profoundly disliked and when it comes to my own uh, being active or not you know I'm, I'm one of these persons who whenever I come into a new environment I spend a long time listening looking before I say something because I'm too afraid of embarrassing myself Lur and I'm lurking, lurking thank you <laughs> yeah, I spend a lot of time lurking uh -huh. <laughs> and and I'm not done with the lurking yet mm. I need to lurk more to listen more, to see, you know, to, to learn how to speak in this environment. Maybe I will never do it if I don't think it's useful enough. That's uh, that's my take, and I think there are many of us who, who do this. And uh, it's also, it, this is going to sound lofty, but, you know, I was trained as an MD, and I spent a lot of time being trained in active listening and just, like, listening techniques and how you communicate with people and it's just that, you know, if you, if you should have any hope of conveying a message to someone with any chance of making them change something in what they do, like, you, you got to spend a lot of time first creating a bond with that person, like making that person trust you for good reasons. And, well, Twitter is not the medium for that. There is no way I can listen to people have them feel listened to before i speak so it it's i see no use like of course i can use it to broadcast whatever opinion i have i don't think that they are interesting enough at this point but yeah that's interesting um a few thoughts one uh you say it's the diamonds that keep you going back but i wonder if it's the shit too here's why i think the i think it has done a very good job of figuring out what irritates us and recognizing that being irritated is actually something that sucks your attention. You want to be irritated. So I worry in my own case that was that. But I've disabled so many settings on that thing that now I barely look at it and it doesn't show me anything anymore. The second thought about the heavyweights. What do you call it? Heavy hitters. Yeah, I, I think I said heavyweights. I'm not sure. Heavyweights or heavy hitters. <laughs> uh, I would say yeah. that I, I think you're onto something. I would say that the problem is um, in the set of people considered heavy hitters, 50% don't know what they're talking about. I really, really, I mean, they really uh, often, uh, I hate to say this, because I don't, it's, it's not about credentialism. It's about the fact that they repeatedly show that they don't know what they're talking about. So some may have, you know, spent time at university, some may have university affiliation, some may not have university affiliation. It really has nothing to do with their credentials. It has to do with the content, which is no good. They don't know what they're talking about, and yet they talk about everything with authority. And, that, and, and, and they're indistinguishable from the people who know something about some things. Nobody knows Nobody knows a lot about everything. That's the problem. Everyone acts like they know a lot about everything. Nobody knows a lot. Nobody in this world knows a lot about everything. Some people know a lot about some things, and some people don't know shit about anything. The problem is that the, the second and third group, people who don't know shit about anything, people know a lot about some things, are indistinguishable from reporters, from the lay public, from an educated person on Twitter going to find an advice. They cannot tell apart the person who is consistently wrong for somebody who is occasionally right. Nobody's always right. That's the problem. That's, so I think that's the challenge in this space. The people who are occasionally right 
when they are petty, it really is the stab to the heart. Because then you're like, come on, what little credibility you had from being occasionally right is lost by being tremendously petty. Um, I think they're also not in a good mental place either. Mm -hmm. They are not having um, fun with people and laughs and all the things people need to to be in a good mental place. So I do give them some slack. Um, and then, the, But the thing that irritates me about all these groups uh, is, is the policy side. I mean, you can, yes, you can be an epidemiologist who studies infectious disease models. They love to, that's always the thing they'll say, she's not an epidemiologist, she's not an epidemiologist who studies infectious disease models. I was like, yeah, you know all those people who study infectious disease models for 20 years? They have something to offer. Yes, of course they do. They've been studying these models for 20 years. You know what they don't know? Every policy response that we should do. They have no fucking clue because you've never shut down schools. You've never shut down society. You've never had Zoom. You've never had Uber Eats. You've never had all these things. You've never had all these players. You're talking about every domain of life and you, just because you're good at your modeling, and yes, we should listen to you for that part, doesn't mean you're good at everything and doesn't mean you can suppress the voices of other people with other disciplines from theologians to philosophers to medical doctors, et cetera, et cetera, to people who study policy. And by the way, that's what irritates me the most. Policy is a beast of its own. Because yes, with policy, you have to have the first order considerations. What's the right thing to do? But then there are all the second order considerations and third order considerations that you need to also think about, existential considerations. And just as one example, I think the J&J &J thing for the women under 50 is a big fuck up in this country because we've got two other mRNA options. And that risk, if it was one in a million, I would have said, so be it. But it's one in about 140K and it's probably gonna get a little bit higher when all is said and done. And they don't understand this country. This country is not a country where we're all in arms, a pro-vaccine. This is a country that we were already entering into this with a lot of misconceptions about vaccines. And some of us, perhaps wrongly, we don't like vaccines. And it's one thing to have a few women at a young age die from this CVT, which I actually, since I've treated many CVTs in my life, I know is a disaster. And since I treat a lot of HIT as a hematologist, it's also a disaster. And HIT and CVT is not a blood clot in the leg after taking OCPs. Okay, those are a totally different thing. Um, and, and then the other thing I'd say about OCPs, which I'm going to write in a column, which is that, you know, for a 20-year-old woman, if she's to get COVID, you know, we don't want that to happen, of course. But there's a 99.9 something. I don't want to say the exact decimal point because somebody's going to yell at me. There's a 99 <laughs> point some chance that the rest of her life is going to be the same after she recovers from COVID. 99% chance. Maybe 98% if somebody wants to quibble with me, but I think it's 99 point something. Okay. If uh, OCPs, if she were to have a child, there's a 99.9% .9 chance uh, after a pregnancy test being positive that the rest of her life is going to be different. So I really object to this comparison of OCPs, uh, for which, 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 does so, which has a, a different purpose in someone's life and a different calculation about you know, what a woman wants her whole life to be from taking a vaccine, yes, even for a dire condition when you're a 20-year-old woman. A 20-year-old woman making the decision to take birth control and vaccine, very different decisions. And this analogy is so fucking stupid. I'm so sick of it. Anyway, but yet it's something that people play. But my point is that it, the policy consideration is when, after you have now reapproved it, there is inevitably going to be some 20-year-old girl who gets this vaccine, perhaps under the pressure of a college mandate. She's going to experience the event of interest. I hope not, but it's almost you know, a sure thing if the sample size gets big enough. Um, and then you might get a family member, a loved one, saying, well, she didn't really understand the risks. She didn't really know about it. You put it back on the market, even though there were two avail available alternatives, you might have her get the shot in August. And who knows what the caseload will be in August. Maybe it's super fucking low. And then you're going to find a 20-year-old woman in a setting of very low spread um, was getting the shot for a college mandate. Uh, she ended up having this disastrous thing. Her family says she never was fully informed. She wasn't aware of it. That is, a po and from a policy standpoint, that's an existential threat to vaccines. So but in other words, when you want to study the policy, you can talk all you want about whatever Janssen model they've offered at the thing, but you have to think about these third order considerations if you really want to play policy. And you know what? You may be a modeler, you may be whatever you are, but you haven't been in the policy business. And I haven't been in that long, but I've been in for a decade and I know for damn sure that these are the kinds of things people need to consider. They are equally important in policies and politics, which is in a messy reality that isn't, you know, a laboratory space. And you know to some degree because you're a doctor and that's also, a, you know, the messy reality. I, yeah, I think, yeah, regarding all the expertise that is needed, yes. that you say, 
I mean, I've been thinking a lot about like the credentials discussions, even from the start. You know that that guy who did the hammer and dance. Uh, <laughs> yes. He runs. The, yes. The, I yes. was so annoyed by that in the beginning. Oh, I was annoyed. I <laughs> thought, oh, you can't simplify data like this. You don't show it. But like But the this. problem wasn't that he was an <laughs> educational consultant selling some bullshit software. The problem was the argument was also shitty. <laughs> the argument was shitty. That was a real problem. Okay, hammer yeah. dance. But still, fifty million views. Yes, but I still want to give him because I said I I was really annoyed in the yes, beginning okay. with him. But you give him credit. But I do give him credit because you know, these people who are being called like armchair epidemiologists and everything, you know what they do. Have, why do people listen to them? They obviously have something, and yes. you know they are good at communicating. Yes, with, yes. With Perhaps people. erroneously, but they're good at it. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. we need them yeah. too. We need them on board, and the, the more we communicate with them and involve them, well, the better. Hopefully their message is going to be so that's one and um two comments like in about what you're saying but in in the swedish context so i've read um comments saying that well one good thing about the public health agency in sweden is that they from the start they've had this like view of the totality of health they are not just focused on the um communicable diseases but they're also focused on like public health in general I think that is has been a strength. They have then, maybe that had contributed to why they took the decisions they took regarding schools, for example. That's my very simple interpretation of it. But then on the other hand, we have um, maybe the most um, most known organized opposition, which is called Wetenskapsforum, like Science Forum. And those were originally 22 researchers who made like op-eds in the biggest um, Swedish newspapers criticizing the Swedish strategy and um, there has been some I, I could say fairly petty antagonism between different players but anyway I think that Wetenskaps Forum plays an important role they have been criticized for well this is not your field like some of them you have not published in this field in, in a long time or this is not originally your field I don't think that matters that much mm. people can take their their opinions for what they are right. And they play an important role. It's it's an important debate. Um, that's my view of it. And we should then counter that. I say we. Um, I don't really know who I mean with we. But people should, if they disagree, well, then meet their arguments. That's well put. I uh, I agree with you about that uh, hammer dance guy. I actually put him in the same category as, um, I mean, journalists, really. They're communicators. And so we need them on the side of, like, you know, hearing and understanding different arguments and presenting different arguments. I think that it, the one way in which journalism has derailed, probably two ways, one, maybe three ways. One, they become addicted to clicks like everyone else, so clicks drive rather than substance. Two, they have, I think, become more political and that there are outlets that are thought of as left-leaning and right-leaning and so that they're, and science has also become intertwined with politics, which is not good. And three, I think they also feel more apprehension about, quote, both sides in an argument. Um, because of some issues such as, I think, climate change, where they feel like they wrongly gave voices to both sides. Um, but other issues like school closure, where they ought to give voices to both sides because there is a substantive debate, they, you know, write articles that irritate me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Catherine Axforce, um, I'll give you the last word. Any thoughts? We've been talking for quite a while. You, when I tell you at the end, you will be surprised because it always goes fast. Um, any last thoughts about Sweden, science, where we are now? Thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. No, I think it's been, a, it's been a chance to try to figure out my own thoughts regarding Sweden. I think there is so much more to investigate. I just hope it, it will be done fairly and with patience. That's all. And with pre-registration. <laughs> and with pre-registration, yes. <laughs> Anybody listening, if you don't know what it is, find out what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Captain, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.